Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wealth Tech Show, the CityWire podcast that discusses how technology will change the future of investing in personal finance. I'm Ian Horn, and today I've got a fantastic guest in the form of Dan Kemp, Global Chief Investment Officer at Morningstar Investment Management. Now, we've got a lot to discuss today as we're going to be looking at why technology stocks have collapsed in 2022. Now, Dan, this is a, a big topic, a, a massive topic, in fact. But first, welcome to the Wealth Tech Show. Uh, how are you doing today? Ian, thank you for having me here. Yes, really well. Thank you. Uh, you. When people are listening to this, they'll need to know that London's going through a, a heat wave at the moment, <laughs> uh, which is not great if you're a gardener. Uh, no. But it's, it's lovely to have some decent weather in town. And also lovely to be in this air-conditioned studio. Uh, yes, it really, well, really is. <laughs> and first observation, Dan, you've got a fantastic radio voice. I don't know if you've heard that before. Uh, I haven't heard that before. I'm sure it's not true, but you're, you're clearly buttering me up for the, <laughs> for the tough questions later on. But I'll take it. That's fine. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, you've seen right through me. But um, look, uh, before we get into the arranged questions, which I, I sent through to you a while back, uh, and seeing as we're talking about technology investing, now, Kathy Wood, the CEO of ARK Invest, as most people will know, has said this week that we're now in a recession. Now, you could be a harsh critic and note that the ARK Innovation ETF's down about 60% this year. But, I mean, that, nonetheless, do you think she's right? Well, firstly, Cathy Wood doesn't get to decide uh, these things. <laughs> There's a, a body, uh, the NEBR in the, the US, that decides when a recession starts and, and stops. That's a, that's a technical definition. The, the everyman definition is that we have two quarters of negative growth. We've had that. Yes. And so the everyman definition is that, yes, we are in a recession. Uh, but that doesn't really tell you anything uh, because we don't know whether it's going to be a deep recession, a, a mm. sharp recession, a, a long one, a, a short one. And so it's not about whether we're in a recession at the moment. That'll be finally decided later on. It's about what's priced in to asset prices. That's a key thing with all investment. It's not about what the future holds. It's what future's priced into assets at the moment. Gotcha. So Cathy Wood can't just declare a recession. I can't just declare a recession. Well, I mean, you can declare it all you like, but it, it's not, it's not, it's not going to change. Well, and again, from, from Cathy Wood's perspective, of course, she's, yeah. she's looking for supportive narrative. You know, she's had a, just an incredibly tough time with these stocks that were meant to grow at very high rates and had very high valuations to reflect that. Uh, we've seen those, those valuations drop sharply. We've seen some of the growth rates uh, more challenged. We'll talk about that later on, I'm, I'm sure. And so, uh, yes, it's a very supportive narrative that it's not the stock she holds, it's what's happening in the economy. But again, a responsible investor is building a portfolio for a range of possible outcomes, not just the outcome that the economy is going to the moon. Brilliant. Okay, well answered. Uh, let's get into our our scheduled questions. Uh, and the main thing, of course, is to look at why tech stocks have collapsed this year. And I think, Dan, if you could outline the situation for us, that would be really helpful. I mean, you've got the, the Morningstar tech sector index. Where's that out at today? And, and how far down is it from its peak? Yeah, sure. So let, let's put this in, in context, uh, that we have had a tough year for tech stocks. But it's on the back of really three fantastic years, mm -hmm. if you've held tech tech stocks, where we've had you know, near 40% growth in share prices over that period. And so when you have a period like that, it's very unlikely that the fundamentals of a company are growing as quickly as the share price. And so yeah. we, I think we could all agree that share prices had got slightly overdone, possibly very overdone 
coming into, into this year. And so this year, we've seen that fall in, in share prices. But although these falls seem significant, so global tech is probably down about 21%, depending on when you're listening to this, or, uh, and, and emerging market tech is down more than that. Developed market tech is down about 20%. Uh, and of course, what's been worst hit are the, the so-called FANG stocks. And arguably, these were the most overrated as well. So it's been a, a tough year, but on the back of uh, three years of very swiftly growing valuation. So the context is really important. Okay. And at the risk of oversimplifying, is this essentially just a, a market correction? I think it is uh, a market correction. And again, to think about what a market correction is, it's really just a track back to fair values. So it was very, very difficult to justify the valuations that tech was at at the back of uh, back end of last year. And so we'd have expected, and we did expect, a move back towards those fair values. We're now in a really interesting situation because if you look at uh, analysts' view of the fair values of, of most tech stocks, uh, then we're near fair value, even below fair value in many cases. But the fair values haven't changed. And what can happen when you go through a recession, and we saw this a couple of decades ago, is it's not just the share prices that fall sharply, but our expectation of the fair value of a business can decline as well. And tech stocks are particularly vulnerable to that because so much of their value is far out into the future. Mm. And so if those uh, fair values start getting adjusted downwards, then suddenly stocks that appear very cheap today may actually appear expensive again, even though the price has fallen. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense, especially you know, during the pandemic. People were talking about five years of progress happening in one year and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of examples. We saw Klarna uh, recently, uh, its valuation dropped by about 85%, which is obviously huge. Um, as you say, that some of the bigger companies have been hit hard, though. The Fang stocks, you know, even Salesforce as well was, was hit pretty hard. And you'd expect those companies to be less kind of vulnerable to wild movements, wouldn't you? Why is it, do you think, that the established names have actually been hit hard? Is it purely market conditions or is it anything to do with their own behaviors, their own kind of actions? I don't think it's really so much their, their own actions. It's more about the way that they've been perceived by, by shareholders. Okay. So it, remember, uh, tech is particularly large in the U.S., and so it's not just that tech stocks have been rising rapidly. That's impacted the whole U.S. market. So mm -hmm. as people look at the U.S. market, it's been growing in, in price very rapidly. And so people have been putting more money into the U.S. market. Uh, what are the companies, that, uh, the largest companies in the U.S. index? Yeah. They're the tech stocks. And so actually the U.S. market's become quite concentrated uh, as people have been putting more money in there, been putting more money in tech stocks as that's been driving the valuation of, of stocks up. So it's, it's not the, the companies that are trying to get on with their their day-to-day their -day investment and, and execution. It's the perception in the minds of, uh, of shareholders and a belief that the world has changed due to uh, cloud computing and the return that you can get on intangible assets. And unfortunately, when we believe the world has changed, uh, we tend to project that far forward into the future. Uh, yeah. And then we get over-enthusiastic and that leads to share price being too high. But we know that over the long term, share prices will track back to a, a reasonable expectation of fair value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we've seen this year, obviously, as you were alluding to, the impact this tech downturn has had on the NASDAQ in particular has been quite, quite profound. Um, now, look, are there any parts of the tech market that have bucked the trend, though? Because, you know, it can't just be bad news across the board, surely. 
It's not bad news across the board, and some have been worse affected than others. So uh, as I mentioned, emerging market technology stocks, particularly those in China, mm -hmm. uh, have been uh, more, uh, more badly affected, and that reflects what's happening specifically in, in China around regulation, mm -hmm. as well as, uh, as, as concerns about the future growth prospects of, of, of those companies. And there have been some stocks which have done better. So Apple uh, has yeah. been a bit more resilient than others. And again, that reflects the fact that uh, Apple has to make and sell things. And so it's more difficult for its valuations to get completely out of hand uh, because you can't just add to its revenues uh, by uh, by hosting a, a website. Uh, yeah. They do obviously have large subscription revenue, but mainly their revenues from making and buying things, and that and that limits uh, the the rate of rate of growth there. But it's it's uh, we're seeing some of the uh, the weakest returns in those areas uh, that where the expectations were highest, where the scaling was was most aggressive, and again actually lower prices are a good thing for investors. People forget this, but unless mm -hmm. you're selling today, unless you have to sell today, then what it, the lower prices are really creating opportunities for much better investments. Brilliant. Um, and you know, you, you mentioned Apple having to sell things, making them a bit different for their, from their peers in, the, in this respect. Do you think there's you know, now, now more reason than ever to look at the balance sheet for these tech companies? As you say, we were looking into the future, weren't we? We were looking at these big ideas and what might happen. Has the balance sheet become more and more important this year? So that is the most important question in investment right now. Because one of the great stories around these companies is that the balance sheet doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter as much uh, going, going forward. Yeah. Even I'm shocked by it. Uh, but the balance sheet doesn't, uh, doesn't matter as much uh, for these companies as it does for traditional companies because the investment doesn't go typically into building factories and bringing in inventory. All the investment goes into intangibles. Intangibles tend not to show up on the balance sheet in the same way. And so, therefore, these businesses can scale much more quickly and the balance sheet becomes more, uh, less relevant than it does for traditional companies. But, of course, investment in intangibles is still investment in an asset which is going to degrade over time. And the real question is, do intangibles depreciate faster than physical stocks? So the expectation is that you can invest in intangibles yeah. <laughs> and they'll be permanent. Uh, so brand and things like that are, are permanent. Uh, whereas if you invest in a factory, it degrades over time. But in reality, of course, your investment in brand may be less permanent because fashions change. Yeah. And so arguably, uh, taking uh, the investments that these companies have made in intangibles onto the balance sheet, rebuilding the balance sheet, uh, is the core job an investor of, of an investor right now. And uh, very few people are really focusing on it, but it is the key question in technology investment. Yeah, and, and it's such an interesting position. Intangibles as something to depend upon. That in itself is just a bit crazy, isn't it? Well, exactly. The, the, I think this is the thing that we've all kind of got caught up in. Well, you know, you can you can invest in your intangibles by through advertising, for example, uh, and that does, of course, create brand and create brand value. But we don't really know how quickly the impact of that advertising fails. And of course, if a if a company makes a, a misstep, does something terrible, uh, then that brand value can disappear very quickly. Um, you can look at intellectual property again. Uh, how many of these companies? Gen, uh, genuinely have intellectual property. So 
is one food delivery firm? Does it have more intellectual property than another food delivery firm? Possibly not. Maybe that's just brand. Uh, And then again, it has to be supported through advertising spending. So it's very important to unwrap all of these things as we think about investment. Yeah, I find that really interesting because we're looking at brand loyalty. And yet many industries, there's there's not really any brand loyalty. I mean, look again at balance sheets. Uber has had to start turning profits now. And at the same time, if I'm picking a, a cab across London, I'll load up all three of my apps and I'll pick the cheapest one. Of course. You know. And it's the same drivers are working for all yeah, three, typically. Exactly. And, and again, that's the thing that we're, uh, we're forgetting, that that brand loyalty, once you've got a, a few big players in the space, uh, that's probably not as effective as, as people think it is. And so as we think about the valuation of these businesses and their ability to scale, then we really have to think not only about the benefits of not having to buy plant and equipment or not even having to buy servers these days because of the cloud, but look at what the ongoing costs of uh, building these companies are. Mm -hmm. Now, as you've also mentioned, some are going to see this as a buying opportunity right now. Valuations are lower. There's been a correction. Um, Some might think the market's still got a long way to fall. I suppose you, you could always take that view as well. How, in your opinion, should investors react? And do you think quick and decisive action is is the way forward here? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> uh, the, the rule of thumb is never react. I said it like it was sensible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, you, you described it beautifully, but actually, no, don't react. Uh, because reaction is is where we are most vulnerable to our behavioral biases. And everyone's aware of the behavioral biases. People have been talking about them for two or three decades. Um, and yet we still fall foul of them all the time. And these behavioral biases come most of the fore when you have these sharp uh, movements in prices. So when prices are rising very quickly, the people suffer from FOMO and want to kind of get in and, and buy. And when prices are falling sharply, uh, people then worry about uh, continued falls. So reaction is bad. You need to prioritize research over reaction. Take a step back. Do it very slowly, very calmly. You'll still be able to buy these companies in, uh, in weeks or months, months ahead. And it's unlikely to make much of a difference and it might help you. But, but no, you, the, the key thing is to have this valuation anchor because there's a really important difference between a discount and a bargain. Just because yeah. something's discounted from its previous price doesn't mean it's a bargain. You need to work out as an investor whether something is a genuine bargain or, or not. And the only way you can do that is by having a realistic appreciation of the value of a business. And that requires the research, the, the, the deep work uh, that, uh, that takes you away from worrying about the moment-to-moment price, the latest piece of news, the mm-hmm. siren songs that surround us when we're investing, and really thinking about what what the true value of that business is. And once you've got that, once you've thought about not just its value in one particular environment, but its value across a range of possible outcomes, remember the future is probabilistic, it's not deterministic, yeah. uh, then once you've got that value, then you can decide whether these things offer, uh, offer um, genuine value, offer a, a genuinely good investment opportunity. Yeah, and, and that seems absolutely paramount right now as we're expecting. Yeah, a number of pundits have suggested there's going to be a tech clear out, especially on smaller companies that don't have robust business models or in fields that are a bit more diverse because money's piled into all sorts of things, hasn't it? Like driverless cars and uh, you know aerospace stuff, which may or may not have a... Rocketry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. All these things, yeah. All of that. And, and these are, you know, tech is a sector, but these investments are very different to investing in, say, Microsoft or... Exactly Apple, right. You know. And, and it... But, but that's the, the beautiful thing about investment, that although uh, every asset class is different, every company is different, every business model is different, when you're investing, it's actually 
really straightforward. You are buying a stream of future cash flows. Yeah. Uh, and the, the only questions then become, what's the size of that cash flow? Uh, how far in the future is it likely to uh, arise? And what's the right rate to discount that future cash flow back to today? And you can apply exactly that same process for any possible investment, whether it's, it's rocketry and, and tech, <laughs> whether it's uh, a, a factory, whether it's a building. It's, it's all the same process. But the, the key is that most people will just have one narrative in their head. And they'll, they'll use that narrative to inform that discount rate and that expectation of future cash flows. The problem is we see the, the path of history behind us and believe that there's a path of history in front of us. We just have to uncover it. In reality, that doesn't exist. That's not actually how the, how the future works. Uh, the future is genuinely uncertain. And so you have to think about a wide range of outcomes, a wide range of, of scenarios, and use that to create uh, a variety of valuations. And then think about how that uh, particular investment will do in those different scenarios. But it's never just one stream of cash flows. It's always a range. It's really interesting how the principles of behavioral finance kick in here. Yeah. Because obviously, I think a lot of people look at tech as a chance to make a fair amount of money quite quickly as well, don't they? So it brings in all the worst of, of human impulse. I mean, but we do need to keep a long-term horizon. And, and for you, Dan, when we're looking at technology, the technology sector, what is a long-term horizon? How, how many years is long-term when we're looking at this? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good, good question. And when you think about what drives asset returns... Uh, if you look over, let's say, a 30-year period, you're going to get the, the fair value, really, of that, of that asset. Uh, so you can kind of forget about valuation. You're going to get the fundamental uh, returns of that asset class. The valuation is going to wash out over that period. Now, most people are not patient enough to make an investment and ignore it for 30 years, and nor should they. Uh, but nevertheless, that's, that's where you don't have to worry about valuation. If you're thinking about a 5- to 10-year period, then really what's going to dominate returns over that period uh, is the changes in valuation. And so it's so important uh, if you're investing over, let's say, a normal time horizon, a uh, five to ten year period, that you are focused on valuation. As you get uh, closer to the present, then it becomes more and more noisy, more and more random. Uh, momentum and fashions play a much higher role. And uh, some people will be very good at trading on, on momentum. Most people aren't. Uh, it, it tends not to... Um, yield to fundamental analysis. And so really, that's why people need to be thinking about a five to 10 year period or making any investment decision unless you are actually a trader, but then you need to separate trading from investment. Investment is a is a five year plus, we yeah. hear it always, uh, but it's a sort of five year plus um, horizon. And that's because that's the period that yields to fundamental analysis. But the most important thing, and you mentioned this in terms of the, uh, the excitement that comes into play. If investment is exciting, you're doing it wrong. Uh, <laughs> investment is fascinating, but it really shouldn't be exciting. It's, it's all about growing your assets slowly, but at a high compounding rate, ideally, uh, mm -hmm. not about uh, what you can do in the next uh, three or six months. And this is where we've had all of these challenges, not just with, with tech over the last few years, but also with you know, crypto and all these other things where people have believed that they can have transformative wealth uh, almost overnight. And just that might work for one or two uh, folks. And obviously spread out the world, that could be thousands, even hundreds yeah. of thousands of folks. It's still only one or two really um, in, any, in any area. It's, uh, 
in reality, it's about growing that wealth slowly. Yeah. And it's funny, every time my friends ask me about investments, and I've mentioned this on the, on the podcast before, it's always something wildly speculative. And it's rarely an index tracker fund. And the friends that do talk about that are really boring. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> but, you, but you're absolutely right. But it is, it's, it is yeah. boring. It's meant to but be something good, that accumulates what, yeah. over a long, long period of time. Yeah. 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 And I, I, that's always what I tell people when they say, what about this? How about some you know, medicinal, medicinal cannabis fund? I say, do something boring. Yes. Do something nice and reliable. Absolutely. But do it consistently over a long period mm-hmm. of time. Save regularly, invest regularly. Yes. Um, have it, uh, you know, reduce the cost as far as possible. Actually, this is what leads to success. The challenge is that it tends not to hold the attention of people. And that's where market ups and downs are so dangerous because they draw in the attention of people, you know, particularly when stocks are volatile anyway, like technology, uh, particularly when there's a, there's a fashion element to this as well, and, and you get into the realms of, of influencers. That, you know, that's all very uh, attractive. And so it, it draws you in, but in reality, it's unlikely to uh, deliver you the return that, you're, that you want. Now, there will be a time, uh, I'm sure, when technology is so out of favor as it was you know, a, a decade ago that you can get the most incredible bargains in, in technology, but it's a question whether we're there yet. Yeah, and to stay on the kind of semi-exciting side of things, let's have a look at what this means, this current downturn means for private equity investors as well, you know, especially those looking for, for some serious growth. Uh, some numbers on this, by the way. Uh, 2021 was a record year for venture capital startup investing, with $620 billion flowing in globally relative to $293 billion the previous year. So less than half of that. And you might think 2020 pandemic year might have stifled you know, investment, but it, but it didn't. 2020 was very much on trend with, with previous years, whereas 2021 was a real standout. Um, you know, there's also loads of VC capital, venture cap capital that hasn't been deployed there's a i think in february there was 750 billion dollars of dry powder for vcs and growth focused private equity funds um yeah so what's going on there and how should private equity look at this downturn yes uh, it's a, a really good question and uh, here i'm sort of deeply reliant on my colleagues in in pitchbook which is a, <laughs> another sort of morning star uh, business that that, that that produced the data on, on these sort of things. And as I look at their report on fund flows, what's really interesting is not just the flows that we're seeing, but where the returns were for venture investors last year and the year before and the year before that were primarily in the valuation of these assets increasing. It wasn't realizations, you know, capital being returned to, to private investors as uh, assets are sold or as they're, as they're floated. It was primarily in uh, the valuation increases. And again, that makes sense because when you have an enormous amount of money uh, chasing a, uh, a, a, a relatively small number of opportunities or poorly capitalized, uh, initially opportunities, uh, small companies, uh, then it's not surprising that you get these very high prices. And of course, we can all come up with models to justify uh, why a, a, a nascent uh, business is worth a, an absolute fortune by just tweaking those, uh, those growth rates mm-hmm. and tweaking the discount rate and, and you get some incredible valuations. Uh, but the, the, the key thing uh, to remember is that capital tends to flow in and out of, of of private equity and particularly venture. We've seen these sort of booms uh, before, not really to this size, to be honest. This is something quite special, Uh, but we've seen these booms before. But when you have an enormous amount of capital chasing a 
relatively small number of opportunities or opportunities being created to absorb the capital, then they're unlikely to be the best investment opportunities. Yeah, I can see that. But I guess the flip side of that, like, well, you're getting the best part of a trillion dollars of, of dry powder there. Does that mean that the companies with better, kind of more believable, at least, business models have a, have a greater chance of, of surviving this downturn, would you say? They probably have a greater chance of surviving, but the question is what valuation mm-hmm. they uh, they survive at to deliver returns for, for shareholders and how far ahead that valuation is is realized. Because unless a uh, a business is is able to take in capital and produce a really high return on it, uh, then of course new investment coming into a business is dilutive. It reduces the pie for the existing investors. And of course we saw that in a in a very public way in the sort of rights issues that during the financial crisis, uh, you know, where suddenly shareholders in some of the UK banks uh, ended up having having shareholders that were worth almost nothing because the government had to come in uh, and 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 bail out these these banks. And that's just an example of a dilutive uh, capital raise. And so so that's that's one thing to be aware of when relying on dry powder. The, the second thing is that uh, people are expecting dry powder to lead to new investments being made. But you were absolutely right when you pointed out that a lot of this dry powder may be used to uh, make follow-on investments to keep uh, existing investments alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's the real the real challenge if you've already invested, that you're getting diluted and the, the quality of the opportunities that your capital is being invested in may not be as good as it was before because these things aren't, aren't growing and, uh, and, and, are, and are falling in, in, in valuation. And so the, with, with private equity, uh, one of the things that is often missed by investors is there tends to be a huge gulf between the best funds uh, and the worst funds, not just in terms of the best managers and the worst managers, but also the vintages as well. And when you invest, so when you invest is, is, is really important. And so uh, people tend to invest at the wrong time because they invest when it's really popular and yeah. don't inv- and, and companies are expensive to buy and they don't invest when, when capital is, is scarce. So it becomes uh, counter-cyclical. So it's not like the uh, investing in public equities where if you buy a, uh, a US equity fund, unless something really unusual happens in that fund, it's going to give you a return that's probably quite like the index these days. Yeah. And, in, uh, yeah, and companies obviously IPOing later because they have this capital. Exactly. But with, with mm-hmm. private equity, then uh, you're buying unique assets. There's, there's no index mm-hmm. uh, of, of private equity opportunities. And so the returns are really variable. And so you're taking a greater manager specific risk with private equity than you are with, uh, with public equity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's go back to the general downturn. Now, you know, us journalists, we love to come up with terms, repeat things, and compare things to things that happened before. People are looking at this downturn and, and suggesting that it might be a repeat of the dot-com bust of 2000. Now, I'd say the consensus is that it, it's not, but what, what's your take on that? So here we rely on Mark Twain, uh, that, that history never repeats, but it does rhyme. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the characteristics we're seeing in this market and the market just gone are very similar to those that we saw in in '99, so there were in 2000, 2001. So there was a big event that that prompted uh, capital spending. It was the Millennium Bug uh, back in '99. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it was uh, the uh, the pandemic uh, more more recently, 
So a huge amount of spending. Uh, and, and that, of course, is, is, uh, has transformed the, the business models of many of these, these, these tech companies. Uh, but then as you roll through and the future doesn't look like a steady upward path, but looks more variable, uh, then these valuations come back to more normal levels. Now, the challenge uh, in uh, 2000, 2001 is because uh, businesses were floated much earlier. This was happening in the public markets. There were businesses that had no real business model, no hope of survival, really, uh, that were on the public markets. And so we saw um, these, these companies wiped out or, or reduced to a, a tiny portion of, of what they were before. We're not in that situation now. As you say, a, a lot of companies are staying private much, much longer. So we're seeing the real pain happen in the private markets, in the venture market, uh, rather than the public markets at the moment. And a lot of the businesses that dominate uh, the tech space are large, well-capitalized, well-established businesses uh, with real business models. And so it's, it, there are some uh, similarities, uh, but it's definitely not the same. Yeah. And as I say, the consensus seems to be exactly what you're saying. I've got some some quotes here. So uh, the Credit Suisse chairman, Axel Lehman, told CNBC recently that a lot of companies probably will disappear, but we should not think that the fundamental trends will not still remain. And he says that technology and digitization are key themes that business leaders need to be mindful of. And UBS CEO Ralph Hamers said, uh, clearly, there is a question of what should the exact market value be of some of these models. But the underlying business models are true business models, not only now, but for the future. So it seems to me that it's tough to disagree with those guys. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And that's, I mean, and that's, I mean, that's the only thing I say yeah. that's dangerous. That uh, when there's a really strong consensus, then you've, you've got to kind of think about maybe maybe the other side of it. But um, but it, it's difficult at the moment to see that we're in the same state we were then simply because of the of the size of these businesses. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a substantial fall because of course often share prices don't just go back to fair value they they shoot beyond fair value and go from being expensive to to really cheap that's the way the market mm -hmm. fashions works that doesn't mean that we won't have significant falls in in this part of the market or, or even more broadly in the market uh, but it uh, as as they said it's just a different set of business models this time around yeah, and you can look at it as a, a kind of damaging downturn that stifles innovation. You could also looking at look at it as a kind of cyclical weeding out of of companies that don't really have much of a right to exist. I mean, where would you sit on the spectrum between those two sides? I I think it's it's always a bit of both. Uh, there's the, the the cyclical downturn kind of refreshes the the market, uh, provides people with opportunities to improve their uh, their future returns. Uh, equally. There will be some businesses that will that will fail. Uh, there'll probably be smaller uh, businesses, uh, of course, uh, businesses that don't have distinctive business models. You know, we we're all aware of them, where you see sort of one franchise operating and a four or five uh, sort of coming in. So people are looking quite carefully at, at, at food delivery yeah. uh, and some of the challenges there. But uh, so you're you're bound to have a, a bit of both. But the 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 key is that through that deep fundamental research to focusing on valuation, you should be able to differentiate between the two and look for the businesses that are just cheap relative to a sound business model rather than get trapped in things that have fallen a long way, uh, but actually are worth nothing at all. Yeah. And there's a lot, you know, we're talking about dubious business models and companies that may be smaller falling by the wayside, but are there any household names that you think have a pretty rocky few years ahead? That's a, a, a difficult one to 
answer, particularly in the area of tech, because things change so quickly. Yeah. Uh, that by its very nature, your business is being disrupted all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so where, uh, I, and I guess this is, this is something I'd, I'd say to all investors, uh, that any single tech stock or any single company, you have a huge amount of specific risk. Uh, yeah. Whereas if you are looking at investing in this space, uh, then a collective investment of some, some kind uh, is likely to get rid of some of that specific risk. So rather than trying to, to pick the, the stocks that are, yeah. are going to go to the moon or going to be completely <laughs> wiped out, particularly in tech, uh, given how dynamic the business models are, I, I would say much better to think of these things as a, as a category uh, and, uh, and, and then uh, sort of spread, your, uh, spread your exposure. And that's really what these venture firms are doing. Uh, mm -hmm. that they may invest in, uh, let's say, three or four food delivery companies, not knowing which one is going to do well, accepting uh, that the others will probably fall by the wayside, but they should make enough money, let's say, on, on one of them. If, if, if the business model actually succeeds, they don't worry too much about the losses on, on the others. And, uh, and again, we tend not to think about that approach as, as investors, but it just shows that benefit of diversification. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had one last question for you. And I think you may have just answered it there because when we talked before, I said I was going to ask you to pick three tech stocks with a 10-year horizon. And you said you probably weren't going to do that, but you're going to give me a, a better answer. Ah, Is that essentially... Ah, talk about over-promising. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes. Go so, on. I think... So, so, okay. So, when we're, when we're thinking about stocks um, over over 10-year horizon, then there's there's two things you need to focus on. So, so one is... Um, the, uh, the the valuation, as I mentioned, and the other is its ability to reinvest capital at uh, at high rates of of returns. And at Morningstar, we refer to that as having as stocks that have an economic moat, you know, a long term competitive advantage. And so you're trying to bring together the idea of valuation and uh, and a moat. And so much better. Uh, to look for a whole a whole range of of uh, companies that can do that, rather than focusing on on any particular one. But an example would be a, an Apple. It's it's one of the the, the stocks that um, is is less highly valued than than others. Um, it is one that has a strong economic moat because of its its ecosystem that has us all paying for iCloud and, and you know, yeah. keep buying uh, iPhones and, and things like that. So it has it has an economic moat. It, it, it can reinvest capital um, at, at high rates of return and it's, it's reasonably valued. Really importantly, I wouldn't recommend anyone uh, rushes out and buys Apple stock. It's an example of how these um, reasonably valued moat stocks um, are well set up for the future. Brilliant. Dan, thank you. Really been a pleasure talking to you today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And real eye-opener as well into the world of tech investing in the downturn. I think long-termism is the, the answer to our problems. Ian, long-termism is always the answer to any <laughs> investment problem. But, but thanks so much for, for having me on. It's been really fun to talk to you. Oh, it's been great. And to everyone who's listened in, thank you for joining us. I'm Ian Horn, and this has been The Wealth Tech Show. Goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.